So today I get to share with us from our I Am series. And one of the things I love so much about Jesus is how every now and then he's not afraid to throw down or engage with those who weren't his disciples in a healthy discourse. He drops teachings, statements, and sayings where his critics had no choice but to go away speechless. And so Jesus wasn't afraid to say something audacious, something to get people talking behind his back or murmuring to each other while he was still teaching. He wasn't afraid to flip preconceived notions of faith in God on its head to help us seek God in a new way. This passage today, I think, is one of those moments where I picture Jesus having this going on. But too often, I think we walk past this and we miss out on just how audacious and how impacting this might have been to his first century audience. So before we dive into our I am statement of the day, I am the gate, I want to show us some of the most audacious sayings from recent history. The first one comes from John Lennon, who famously said, we're more popular than Jesus. The second comes from the legendary boxer and trash talker, Muhammad Ali. I should be on a postage stamp. That's the only way I'll ever get licked. If you don't know what licked means, it knocked out, hit, etc. So yeah, it's a little clever, Muhammad Ali. And the third is from Kanye West, the legendary poet of the 21st century. I am God's vessel, but my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. <laughs> and another one from Kanye, because he's just so much fun. I'm the closest hip-hop is getting to God. In some situations, I'm like the ghetto pope. <sighs> Kanye. And to some, including Brad in this room, in this audience, you might think it's absolutely audacious that I think Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback to ever live. It's okay, he's the greatest, he's got five. And so no matter how audacious those statements may be or are, Jesus himself knew how to do that. And he did that to his critics and his, his disciples when he said, I am the gate. He was making a radically audacious claim. And so Jesus is saying he alone is how we have access to abundant life. He alone is the gate to abundant life. Not you, not I, or anyone else. Jesus is telling us he invites everyone to come in and find abundant life. Jesus is inviting everyone in. Jesus invites everyone. And so this morning, we're going to look at this audacious statement of Jesus, I am the gate, him inviting everyone to the gate. And we're going to look at three results that happen when we enter and encounter the gate. Result one, through the gate, we encounter the security of abundant life. Result two, through the gate, we encounter freedom. And result three, through the gate, God gives the opportunity for everyone to hear his voice. Jesus invites everyone in to come and find abundant life. So result one, through the gate, we encounter the security of abundant life. When Jesus says, I am the gate, when he is telling his audience, he invites everyone to come in and find abundant life, he is in the midst of a larger conversation. The previous I am statement we covered was, I am the light of the world. And so in order to help demonstrate this truth, Jesus healed a blind man who had been unable to see since he was born. He was born blind, and Jesus opened his eyes and allowed him to see. He had been stuck in perpetual darkness, and now this man could see the light. This miracle, you think, would have been celebrated by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, right? Wrong. Instead, the Pharisees took this as a chance to battle with Jesus because he healed the blind man on the Sabbath, on the day you weren't supposed to do any work whatsoever. In the eyes of the Pharisees, no matter how amazing this miracle was, 
Jesus shouldn't have done it because it was work. Jesus, in their eyes, sinned on the Sabbath by healing this blind man. Jesus had the audacity to heal this blind man, something in their eyes that could have waited till the next day. In response, the Pharisees decided not to attack just Jesus, but also the formerly blind man as well. And so we pick up the story in John 9.34 to see the Pharisees say this, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then the Pharisees threw him out. Instead of inviting in this formerly blind man and celebrating with him, they threw him out. They shut the gate. They put up a wall. They chose to decide who was in or who was out of relationship with God. They acted as a gatekeeper. They didn't invite everyone in to come and find abundant life. When Jesus says, I am the gate, he is saying something absolutely audacious in front of this audience who had just witnessed the exclusion of this formerly blind man. See, Jesus is the gatekeeper, and he is also the gate. Not the Pharisees, not you or even myself. But just because Jesus is the gate and gatekeeper doesn't mean there won't be people who try to come in other ways. In John 10, 1, Jesus says, anyone who doesn't enter through the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and robber. No matter how much we may hope, no matter how much we may try, no matter how much we may wish, no matter how much anyone else may push us to say anything different, there is only one way to abundant life, and that is through the gate, through Jesus. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the gatekeeper. In the first century world that Jesus was speaking in, the sheepfold that Jesus' audience was familiar with, there may or may not have been a typical physical gate. What's so interesting about Jesus using this allegory is that for the gate, for the sheep pen, it is most likely that the gatekeeper was also the gate. So the gatekeeper would lay down in front of the opening of the sheep pen in order to keep the sheep from going in and out and keep everything else out. There was no access to the sheep pen without going through the gatekeeper or him being aware of it or him letting you in. Most of us, I'm pretty confident in this statement, didn't grow up on a farm or around sheep. But this idea of a gatekeeper shouldn't be too unfamiliar with us. We live in a world where we see gatekeeping all around us. I think of the Marvel movie franchise Thor, where we have a character called Heimdall, and his sole responsibility, his sole purpose, is to protect Asgard as the gatekeeper. He lets people in or he lets people out. That's his job. No one enters or leaves without him knowing about it or him letting them in. We see gatekeepers all around us. They come in the form of the toll booth operator, they are the teenager working at the movie theater who tears your ticket stub and tells you where to sit. They are the bouncer at the club, which I did not go to last night. Gatekeepers are all around us. Gatekeepers let us in to experience a world we did previously not have access to. As we enter in through the gate of Jesus, as we find abundant life, we also find the security of Jesus as our gatekeeper, as our gate. In the same way that Heimdall protects Asgard, when we enter through the toll booth, we don't have to worry about a ticket. When we encounter the teenager at the movie theater who tears our ticket, we don't have to worry about the employee with the clipboard and the flashlight coming and kicking us out. When the bouncer at the club lets us in, we know we are valuable and we have worth. Jesus is the only gate to abundant life. And in this, we have security. In the Gospels, Jesus tells us it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There is only one path, one way to abundant life, and it is through the gate, through Jesus. 
where are others trying to circumvent the gate of abundant life? This past weekend, I started listening to the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I wanted to see what all the hype was about, and as these podcasters look at Harry Potter through the winds that we typically, as disciples, look at the Bible. They take this story by J.K. Rowling about a magical world and read it as disciples like us looking to learn and glean wisdom from their sacred text, Harry Potter. They simply are seeking to find abundant life through the world, through the writing of Harry Potter. And there may be wisdom all over the world, but there is only one gate to abundant life, and that's Jesus. It's always Jesus. There's a story people like to tell about a blind man or blind men in the elephant. Perhaps you've heard of it. One day, these three blind men are out for a walk, and as they're out for their walk, they happen to fall into a pit. As they're in this pit, they discover they are in a pit with an elephant. And they are trying to find their way out of this pit with the elephant. And so they're, they're clawing around, they're scratching around, trying to find a way out. And one of them finally grabs onto the tail of the elephant and exclaims, I've found a rope. The other blind man climbs on and feels the leg of the elephant and exclaims, I've found a pillar. Finally, the third blind man holds onto the trunk of the elephant and exclaims, I've found a tree. These blind men who encounter the elephant think they found three different things in order to get them out. This story, told in many different forms and settings, is used all the time as a means to talk about relativism. For it not mattering what you believe or think, because like these blind men, we're all believing in the same thing. We're believing in the elephant, even if we're describing it a little differently. Technically, we're all believing the elephant, just different aspects of it. But there's a pretty fatal flaw to this concept. See, none of them actually believe in the elephants. They think they found a rope, but they actually found a tail. They think they found a pillar, but they actually found a leg. They think they found a tree, but they actually found a trunk. The way out of the pit wasn't through a rope or a tree or a pillar. It was through an elephant. Not a single one of these blind, man, blind men actually believed in an elephant. And I've been in Seattle long enough to know now that this could be a scary concept. But there are not multiple entry points to abundant life. Jesus is the only gate, the only entry point to abundant life. It can be too easy as we sit here today or I stand here today to think it's those who don't know Jesus, who aren't disciples of Jesus, who look for life outside of Jesus. But we do it too. Where do you, even as a follower of Jesus, look for abundant life outside the security of Jesus? I look for abundant life through people, through community, through people liking me. I am a hyper, hyper, hyper extrovert who suffers from a strong case of FOMO. F-O-M-O, the fear of missing out. The fear of missing out on the fun, exciting, adventurous happenings in the Pacific Northwest. The fear of not being invited to the party. The fear of not being invited over or out to dinner. The fear of not having a place to go on a holiday. The fear of missing out. If I have the right people, the right amount and type of community around me, then I will have abundant life. I don't need Jesus to have abundant life. I just simply need people to have an abundant life. So much of my life is spent looking for security somewhere other than the abundant life of Jesus. To remedy this struggle of community as my abundant life, I know I have to build in times of solitude, times where I schedule time without people, where I only spend time with God. In these times of solitude with Jesus, I'm reminded that Jesus is the source of my abundant life, not anything else.
So I wonder, where are you looking for abundant life outside of Jesus today? Are you looking for abundant life in a relationship? Are you looking for it in your title or your job? Are you looking for it in your resume or the corner office in downtown Seattle where you can see the Space Needle? Are you looking for it in your bank account? Are you looking for it in your family, perhaps? Are you looking for it in your friends on social media with how many likes you get? Are you looking for it in the bottle or maybe even the bedroom? Where are you looking for abundant life? Once you find life through Christ, it leads to the next result. So the first result is going through the gate we encounter the security of abundant life. And the second result is through the gate we encounter freedom. We encounter freedom. The Pharisees' world of the first century revolved around the Jewish temple. The center of their world was a place filled with division where there should have been unity. See, the holiest place of the temple was in the middle, and only the elite of the elite were allowed into this place. The farther out from this place, the holy of holies, the more people were then allowed in. So outside the holy of holies was the court of priests. Outside the court of priests was the court of, Gentile, was the court of Israel. Outside the court of Israel was the court of women. And outside the court of women was the court of Gentiles. The farther out you got, the more and more people were allowed in. And separating each one of these divisions was a gate. In order to go into the next division, you had to go through a gate. Outside the court of the Gentiles, on the temple, which was a place that was supposed to be a light to the nations, there was a sign that archaeologists found. And before you were even allowed in, as a God-fearing, God-loving, non-Jew, you read this sign. Whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. Jesus saying, I am the gate, is flipping the religious system of the first century on its head. The Pharisees found their identity in deciphering who was allowed into each part of the temple through each gate. Now Jesus is saying he's the gate. He's saying to the Pharisees in the presence of the formerly blind man, no one is excluded from being able to go through the gate. The Pharisees didn't get it. In John 10, 6, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. It's not just the Pharisees who have a hard time understanding this, but we do. We do too. No one is excluded. No one has to be on the outside looking in. No one has to worry about if we are invited in. We are all welcomed in through the gate. No one is excluded and able to not enter through the gate through Jesus. Everyone is invited. Our God is the God of invitation. Our God is the God of invitation. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable of the great banquet, and in this parable, we see Jesus longs to have everyone always in community with him. The servants at the banquet are told by their master to go out to the highways in hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Invite everyone. Everyone is invited. In the book of Acts, we see story after story of God inviting everyone. First in Acts 8, we encounter Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. God leads Philip to this divine encounter with the eunuch, a man who is and was far off from God. So Philip could wind up playing a part, inviting the eunuch into God's community. In verse 36 of Acts 8, the eunuch responds, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Everyone is invited. Second, in Acts, we encounter a man by the name of Saul. Saul was a man who was zealous in his persecution of the first followers of Jesus. His life mission and life calling was to extinguish 
this new religious movement, this new movement of Jesus. But one day, this man who is murdering followers of Jesus gets invited in by our God in Acts 9-4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Saul later becomes Paul and is one of the most influential church leaders that has ever lived. Everyone is invited. Third, we have Cornelius. In Acts 10, we encounter Peter talking to a Roman soldier, a non-Jew who Peter gets the opportunity to invite in after having a vision to realize that our God is the God of invitation. What matters is not how one looks on the outside, but whether we walk through the gate of Jesus. In Acts 10.34, Peter tells us this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Everyone is invited. In the Old Testament, we even see this as we see Rahab and the prostitutes, who is Rahab the prostitute, not prostitutes, who is saved from the destruction of Jericho. We also meet Ruth after her husband passes away, who chooses to go with her mother-in-law to a land that is not her own. Both these women, by the way, are in the lineage of Jesus. Everyone is invited. In Galatians 3.28, Paul, as we mentioned earlier, writes to us and tells us there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everyone is invited. In Ephesians 2, starting in 14, Paul tells us again, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Everyone is invited. Our God is the God of invitation. There's always room for one more. Through the gate, we encounter that there's always room for one more. In verse 9, Jesus tells us this in John 10. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. We are not the goalies of God's kingdom. Our job isn't to keep people out, it's to invite people in. Our job isn't to keep people out, but it's to invite people in. To find wholeness, forgiveness, true love, community, peace, health. I don't think the struggle for us in Seattle is that we exclude. I think the struggle for us in Seattle is that we don't invite people in. We don't invite people into our houses, much less the abundant life of Jesus. I grew up in a pretty legalistic church. It was in a Christian bubble for most of my high school days. I was homeschooled. And the closer I got to college, the more pressure there was on me to go to a Christian university and major in Bible. But the deeper I went with Jesus, the more I couldn't bring myself to do that. And it wound up causing some friction in the church community I was born and raised at. Instead of going to a Christian school, I wound up going to a secular school and majoring in religious studies. I understood that God was the God of invitation and that I wanted to go invite people in. I wanted to show people on my college campus that there was always room for one more. Where do you need to take a risk and participate with the God of invitation since there's always room for one more? As you look around the room, who's not here? Who do we leave out? Who do you leave out? Why? If a gate allows people in, how are we being good gates if we're constantly telling people they're not welcome? The church is for those who are not here yet. And I strongly believe that. The church is for those who are not yet here. If God is constantly in the business of inviting people in, 
showing there's always room for one more, we have to be able to hear his voice. So this leads us to our third result. Through the gate, God gives the opportunity for everyone to hear his voice. And in John 10, 3 through 5, Jesus tells us this. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Who has ever wondered how you hear God's voice? Who has ever desired to have God speak to you personally? Has anybody ever wondered what the answers to these questions are? We have to learn to hear God's voice by practicing in relationship. Learning to hear God's voice takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And chances are, in relationship with your family, you have something unique that makes it easy for your parents to get your attention in a crowded area or even for you to get the attention of your kids. You'll do it and automatically they know it's time for dinner, it's time to quiet down, it's time to come in. They through the practice of relationship, have learned how to discern your voice and you've learned how to discern your parents' voice. Our relationship with God and hearing God's voice works the same way. The way God speaks to me is different than the way God speaks to Brad or Tim or Andrew or even yourself. But I want to give us some practical ways to begin practicing this art of listening to God's voice. See, practicing listening takes time. And the first way we practice this is that we have our community. We have community. We need to find ways to be connected with our Christian brothers and sisters. So maybe for you today, it means joining a gathering at Ballard if you haven't already. Surround yourself with people who can get to know you and help you figure out what God is speaking to you in the moment. But no, just because someone in your community says something doesn't mean God is actually speaking to you. They could be wrong. They could be off. Community is helpful, but it's not the final authority. They are part of the process in discerning God's voice. And I'm sure we can all think of stories or have heard of stories where people have declared they were the voice of God in a situation or God told them to say it, and it wound up to not be true. I've been that person before. I've told friends, and truthfully, I thought I was right, but I've told friends that God really wants them to have that job, the job they wound up not getting. We've all been there. And so community is not the be-all and all. Community is only as good as the time you are willing to invest. That's why you shouldn't just want peers around you in community, but also mentors as well, people who are farther down the Christian road than you are. People have experienced a bit more life and can sometimes speak necessary hard truth into your life when you need help discerning what God is up to. My sister and I love to hang out and spend time together. Over the course of years, we have developed a special call to help find each other in crowded situations like Target or Disneyland. When we get separated as adults, we don't text each other like you may expect. Instead, one of us will yell out, Marco, waiting for the other person to respond back, Polo, until we actually find each other in the crowded situation. This actually works quite well. You'll definitely get a lot of chuckles in a public area, and every now and then, if you're lucky enough, a family of four will join in with you at Target. For my sister and I, this works. We've spent our entire lives being together and being brother and sister. We've learned how to communicate to each other. We've spent years learning to be in relationship with each other and hearing each other's voice. So the second is through spending time in prayer in God's word. Before moving to Seattle and taking this position as a pastoral resident at Bethany, 
I was in a season of discerning and processing what God was up to in my life. I spent time talking to community, seeking wisdom from family, friends, and mentors who knew me and what Seattle specifically had to offer in this season. I spent the time seeking advice and telling my community that I thought God was calling me to Seattle. No one disagreed. I knew if I was trying to impose the will of Jonathan that someone would have told me. But I also, during this season, spent time in prayer and in God's word. Our relationships with others in community shows us that God speaks to everyone differently. But one of the constant forms of communication we all have is prayer and the Bible. You can't hear God's voice if you're not pursuing him, pursuing time and pursuing relationship with him. If you want to be able to hear God's voice, you need to be spending time with God, praying and reading the Bible. And just a note, maybe if you're in the word and you're praying, but you're not hearing God's voice, maybe you need to try not talking so much. See, prayer, talking to God, like all relationships, is a two-way street. When was the last time you sought to listen, to ask God, what does he want to show you, to speak to you? When was the last time you didn't just look to talk and ask? Maybe try sitting in silence and practicing what some call the spiritual discipline as listening prayer. So the third is we need to have faith and rest in faith. God is constantly speaking to his people in a myriad of ways. God spoke to Moses in Exodus through a burning bush. Can you imagine that sight? How long had that bush been burning before it caught Moses' eyes and he stopped to see it? In Judges, Gideon asked for a sign, and a sign to see what God was up to. So he asked for the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. And then after that happened, he asked for the ground to be dry and the fleece to be wet. In 1 Kings, the prophet Elijah didn't hear the voice of God in an earthquake or the distractions but in the stillness, in the quiet. Israel spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness following a pillar of fire and smoke in order to get to the promised land. Jacob, in Genesis, received a dream from God at Bethel, and he woke up and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. They had faith, and they rested in the peace of God. God is constantly trying to call us into more. The problem is, God's not always yelling. The problem is we're constantly looking for God in the big things, the burning bushes, the fleeces, the pillars, the dreams. We need to orient ourselves to look for abundant life, not in those big things, but in the still, small voice Elijah encounters. When you're close to someone in relationship, they don't have to yell. They can whisper it in your ear. They don't need to compete for your attention. Jesus himself took the time to spend intentional time with his father, with God, to pause, listen, and connect. If Jesus did that, how much more do you and I need to do that to hear God's voice? Where is it easy for you to listen and hear God's voice? Are you really good at talking, talking to your community? Honestly, this is my strength. I like community. Where do you struggle being able to discern and hear God's voice? Is it in the quiet? That's my struggle. Slowing down is hard. One of the ways I constantly am trying to put myself in a posture to receive and hear God's voice is through a spiritual discipline called breath prayer. So all it means is praying a simple, short, easy pray, prayer on the regular. So I find myself praying this constantly before meetings in the start of my day. Simply, what I pray is, give me the eyes to see things unseen. Give me ears to hear things unspoken. 
Give me a heart to discern what the next best right step is. There's nothing magic in these words. They put me in a posture to be connected to what God may be up to or speaking to me moment by moment. Through the gate, God gives everyone the opportunity to hear his voice. So leading up to Easter, where do you want to or need to hear from God? Who is God asking you to invite in to fill these seats to bring to the gate of Jesus? If our God is the God of invitation, who is he placing in your life, on your heart, to invite to the gate of abundant life to Jesus? I am the gate is an audacious claim. Jesus invites everyone in to come and find abundant life. We embrace a God who can back up his audacious claims. Unlike the claims of John Lennon, Muhammad Ali, or even, sadly, Kanye West. By going through the gate, we encounter the security of abundant life, we encounter freedom, and God gives opportunity for everyone to hear his voice. In Matthew 27, 51, after the resurrection of Jesus, the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the court of the priests was torn in two. This action was showing us what once was divided is divided no more. Everyone is able to enter through the gate. In Acts 2, the first sermon, the first sermon of the church, after Jesus is resurrected and ascends back to be with God, the Holy Spirit comes upon the first followers of Jesus in an amazing way. They start to speak the language of everyone in attendance, languages they did not know, in order to tell them about Jesus and invite them to the gate. The people in the crowd in that setting were amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And after that, Peter went on to preach a sermon where the entire point of the sermon was that no one is excluded. Everyone is invited. So even in Acts 2, God is showing us that he is the God of invitation. There's always room for one more. So as we close today, and I pray, I wonder, who are you going to invite to the gate? Who do you want to, in the next several weeks, pray and ask God to give you opportunities to invite them to the gate of abundant life? That is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you are the gate that you give us abundant life. We can't find that life anywhere else, but it's only in you. I pray that you give us eyes to see those around us who need to walk in this abundant life, who we can bring to the gates. Thank you so much for the fact that you give us abundant life and we can rest in that security. In your name we pray, amen.